1: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber.
2: And what's up, Matthew and Fred? Thank you for becoming patrons of the show.
1: That's what's up. And, sorry, my Anna. brain shorted out. <laughs> Anna, shorted, I'm ready I, with the live show plug, Goldfield. <laughs> yeah, I was. And then I was thinking about Matthew and Fred and the fact that we're at 80 patrons. No, and we're not.
2: We're not at 80, we're at
1: 90. 90 patrons and how close that is to 100 patrons and my brain exploded. And if you want to see that happen in real time, you can watch our faces make this show on October 16th, which is a Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern. We are having a live show, a live recording of this very podcast, and we've got a really fun topic for you and it's going to be via Zoom and you can register now. For free, for zero dollars. In fact, you, you should to, register now because in fact, if you're register
2: now, if you're listening to this when it's released, it's this Saturday.
1: It's a coming up, so go ahead and register by going to thedirtpod.com/slash i a d two zero two one. That's thedirtpod.com/slash i i d twenty twenty one, and it's for uh-huh. International Archaeology Day. That's what the that IAD stands for. And in the spirit
2: of it, of internationalizing it, we're having it a little bit earlier in the day so that folks, our friends can folks join us
1: from other time zones. Yeah, folks in not North
2: America. So with that, let us <laughs> let us that drop was into my plug. <laughs> it, was, it was a great plug, Anna. Great plug. Thank you. And now I guess the success of the plug will be determined by how many people sign up for the show. Hey, help me out,
1: y'all. Nope.
2: <laughs> got <For> your <laughs> your key performance indicators <laughs> please performance review yeah yeah q3 is coming to a close and now let us drop into second gear this fine spooky season i don't know if you are you feeling chunk are you it's not the sound my car makes um, you feeling in the spirit in the holiday spirit anna
1: i think i feel puckish I think I'm more in, I feel tricksy rather than treaty today. Oh, gosh. Well,
2: I'm, I'm really, I'm fully in spooky season, Mm -hmm. um, because I am suffering from some spooky seasonal allergies and Mm -hmm. I'm kind of depressed. So it's really like, it is October. (laughs) Like I am, (laughs) I'm in it. So we have arrived this week. We're discussing a subject that I have known a whole lot about for a very long time, um, Speaking of topics like that, there aren't that many of the topics like that, but there is one. Um, and I was remiss. I recognize that I went an entire episode talking about feral persons without mentioning their appearance on the X-Files, which is like super
1: embarrassing for me. Um, do you remember that episode, for Anna? Amber, the archivist of the X-Files. I do, actually. I do. It was the, the fifth episode of the first season. Okay. Good <laughs> Lord. And it was like a, there was a male and a female feral mm-hmm. individual. Is that right? And Yeah. Was, and it was maybe...
2: that they were the...
1: Oh, your feral children are losing it.
2: <laughs> they were the inspiration for the Jersey Devil. So that's what, that's what our little friend, that's what those, those, those folks were. Um, but we are talking about the inspiration for another episode of the X-Files today. Um, specifically the fourth episode of season five, Detour. And I know, as I said that, all of my X-Files out there are like, yes, because they know, they know what I'm talking about. I know I've seen it, but, uh, you know, like once. Oh, it's, it's the one where they're, um, in Florida and they're supposed to go to like a team building retreat with these two like super square agents and then Mm. they get stuck at like a Mm -hmm. roadblock and Mulder's like, I'm gonna go check it out. And and it turns out Mothman. So we are getting back to my roots and we are spooking local with the Mothman. Anna, what do you know about the Mothman? Very little.
1: Okay. I I know I've heard podcasts about Edgar T. Mothman, but um, (gasps) I... I associate the stories with like the past few decades. I don't think there was much Mothman before like 1970 ish. And the only thing that really sticks out is remembering hearing that this, this was like, I know there were sightings and I remember hearing possible explanations for the sightings and one involved a crane, okay, maybe like a sandhill crane. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, and I've this news story here. Did you see the news story that about the zoo crane that fell in love with her zookeeper, and they've been together for about fourteen years now?
2: No, I saw stuff about it on Twitter, and I just like did not have the capacity this week. No, it's not. It's not like a weird. It's not no. Anything. I just didn't. I didn't have the capacity, okay. especially if it were heartwarming.
1: Oh, okay. I well, just, it was a, a crane named Walnut at the Smithsonian Zoo. That's all.
2: Well, that's well. Great. Do you know anything else about Mothman? Nope. Okay. Well, great, great. I think that you might uh, be an excellent audience Audience surrogate here (laughs) (laughs) Um, for what what you what you know and what you think you know. Brain empty ready to receive great um so i want to structure this episode by taking a look at what the mothman was originally and and then exploring what it's become today and sort of what it means today before bringing it around to some theories of my own that i've been letting simmer for the past 20 years um so i really hope this comes together as a cogent episode and not like i'm cornering our listeners at a party and making it weird but um here goes. Let's do it. Let me
1: know if I make you feel weird, I guess. Let's start. I got some news about the past 15 years. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, oh, no. Let's start
2: off with the famous headline that casual cryptid enthusiasts may know comes from the Point Pleasant Register. The headline is Couple Seats Man. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible news itself. There's a story. <laughs> Headline, couples see man-sized bird, creature, something.
1: It sounds like it was taken from the notepad of just whatever frustrated police officer was taking down a statement. Just, yeah. Well, was what?
2: So um, I am going to... Uh, I will will soon and frequently be reading some newspaper clippings and um, transcribed letters out of the book Mothman Facts Behind the Legend, which was written by Donnie Sargent Jr. and Jeff Wamsley. Uh, and I have been carting this book around with me since 2002. So Good thing it's not bigger. <laughs>
1: it's not small
2: It's not small, no um, And it was, I knew that I was going to talk about Mothman this spooktober So when I packed up my stuff um, mm, mm-hmm. earlier this year I left this one out I did, I guess, pack my copy of the Mothman prophecies Or I just haven't found it Where I mm. packed it, where I could find it um, So unfortunately well, you won't be getting posted. as many um, readings from that But okay doesn't matter. So I'd like to read, well, I'd like to have Anna read from oh. the front page of the Athens Messenger. So this is Athens, Ohio, um, just across the river from Point Pleasant. So Point Pleasant is in Mason County in West Virginia, and it is on the Ohio River. The Ohio River is one of the big rivers in the U.S. Um, Thank you. And so um, this story comes from the day after the first sighting. Um, the same day as that famous headline that I shared with you just now. And Anna, you want to read me that story?
1: Yes. Here is the title. Winged Red-Eyed Thing Chases Point Couples Across Countryside. This is by Mary Heyer, Point Pleasant Correspondent. And Mary Heyer was um, a big part of sort of bringing this story to to light. Okay. Well, she begins with a bang. What stands six feet tall, has wings, two big red eyes six inches apart, and glides along behind an auto at 100 miles an hour? Don't know? Well, neither do Four Point Pleasant residents who were chased by a weird man-like thing Tuesday night. Two young Mason County married couples today told of being chased by the strange creature around midnight Tuesday. Mr. and Mrs. Steve Melette 3505 Jackson Avenue, go look yeah. them up. And Mr. and Mrs. Roger Scarberry, 809 and a half 30th Street, described their hair raising experiences, which began in the TNT area. Sorry, what's the TNT area? Well,
2: I can tell you. I can tell you when oh, okay. you're done reading the story.
1: Okay. The two couples were riding in a car, and as the auto crested a hill, an object loomed in front of them. The object was in the form of a man, about six feet tall, with wings on its back. Becoming frightened, the couples drove away. As they approached a traffic circle near Route 62, they said the thing loomed in front of the car again. Millette, 29, said they drove toward Point Pleasant on Route 62 at 100 miles an hour, with the strange creature drifting along behind the car. The couple said the thing seemed to avoid lights. When they turned into the C.C. Lewis farm, the creature was again in front of the car. What appeared to be a large dead dog was lying on the road. Later, the couples and police returned to the farm, but the dog had vanished. Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead searched the TNT area. The deputy said the thing was gone, but he found a strange pile of dust. Scarberry, 18, said, believe me, if you ever saw it, you'd be a believer. The men said they might go looking for the thing tonight, but indicated they were afraid they might find it.
2: Yeah, so that was the that was the first news story. The actual first so I'll tell you what the TNT area was in a minute, because it becomes okay. it, just like New York, it becomes a character in its own right in this story.
1: Okay, you're a writer. <laughs> I get it.
2: So um The actual first sighting had been three days earlier in Clendenin, um, which is about 50 miles away as the crow flies, or I guess as the mopping Ah! flies, where a group of gravediggers saw glowing red eyes in a tree before being swooped by a human-sized thing with wings. Sightings continued for about a year, with the last reported sighting being on December 12th, 1967. So that's it. That was it. It was for a year. People saw it for a year and that was it. Okay. So one year of this, Linda Scarberry, one of the original eyewitnesses later said in an interview that she knew 30 to 40 people who had seen it during that year. Um, So people would go out into the TNT area, um, which was the it's like sort of the nickname, the local name for the McClintic Wildlife Management Area, um, which is a rewilded area formerly occupied by the West Virginia Ordnance Works, oh, okay. um, a World War II era munitions factory. So do you know what an ordinance is? I do. Military explosives. Yeah. In World War One and World War Two, there were several places in West Virginia that were used as training especially before i think it was before world war one during world war one before people would go um, into the more like mountainous areas of um, western europe so they would do you could still find like if you go to seneca rocks and you go like rock climbing you can still find like like now century old pitons like hammered into the stone like where people where they had done like mountain climbing maneuvers wow um, and if you go to Dolly sods which is a national wilderness area and it's it's um, it's like a microclimate that is um, much like the Canadian Shield it's like very boggy and cold because it's it's just sort of a relic it's just a like a relic climate relict climate there are unexploded ordinances around yeah and I wouldn't I so wouldn't they tell go. you to like not go off the trail so it's like it's something that is still a part of of Mm -hmm. of the the place here the tnt area was kind of spooky as it was um because it had lots of subterranean storage facilities that people just nicknamed igloos um and there were rumors of live explosives still contained on the site so it makes sense that this would be a spot for teenagers to drive out to because it's kind of spooky and like, ooh, and like, mm. you can sort of, there's a reasonable assumption of safety, but also it could be scary. Right. Um, it, but it also makes sense. This must be a nice, quiet home for a cryptid. Yeah. So almost as soon as there were sightings, there were explanations. And so I'm going to read from the Athens Messenger. Remember the Athens, Ohio messenger headline? WVU professor says bird may be huge crane. So WVU, West Virginia University. The story reads, everybody's getting into the act but the latest speculation on mason county's famous bird comes from one who might know dr robert smith of west virginia university biology department told the mason county sheriff's office this morning that the bird fits the description of a sandhill crane He said the bird is native to the Midwest and also noted that it probably wouldn't stay in one place too long. The crane described by Dr. Smith, who was sending a sketch, stands six or seven feet tall, has about an 80-inch wingspan, and has patches of red around its eyes. He said the eyes would would be about six inches apart. Dr. Smith said the crane would attack and possibly kill a dog, but would not consume it. He also said the crane would attack people only if it becomes cornered or is wounded. The professor talked to the sheriff's office about 10 minutes from Morgantown and said the university is interested in seeing the bird if it is killed or caught. Deputy Millard Halstead said Dr. Smith told him he is interested in and is studying such birds. So um, the story continues from there. But now we've got a professor chiming in and being like, you just got a sandhill crane, which like is interesting, but they don't, but we don't have sandhill cranes. You do, Anna. You've got them out there where you live, but yeah, we don't, we don't really have those. They aren't really on the Ohio river, but, um, I also wanted to share, um, my mom remembers the mothman because my mom was living, my mom grew up Uh, spent part of her childhood near near Clendenin. uh, So they're in Kanawha County. And she was terrified of the Mothman because she would go to school. And she told I asked her the other night and she was like, yeah, because she walked home from school. She confirmed that it was Relatively flat both ways. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so she was in fourth grade. And so she walked home from school and they lived kind of up a hollow. And so she and um, a, another girl up the road who was a couple years older, her would walk and she heard at school that they had seen it in the trees. And I think she's talking about that story of the gravediggers in um, Clendenin. And so she she looked at every tree. That they walked past <laughs> to make sure it wasn't there. Wow. And she was terrified. Sorry. And so she remembers this period. And and she yeah. remembers um and then the tragedy that that comes soon. Um, she remembers as like one of the first like news stories that she remembers. Um so this was a real very real part of of lives and so like she was terrified. Um, Oh. Yeah, so my poor little little Paula Jean was very scared of it. Oh, Um, Paula Jean. So about six weeks later, a very big snowy owl was killed in Mason County and folks were like, did we get him? Um, So eyewitnesses said it looked absolutely nothing like what they had seen, but massive freak owl remains one of the leading (laughs) theories for what accounted for what people reported seeing. It's like the staircase. Uh, Yeah, super, super recent. (laughs) Ah, Anna, finger on the pulse. So skeptical researcher, (laughs) skeptical researcher Joe Nickel uh, seems to think it's an owl. But let's hear Anna read some great owl takes courtesy of the Audubon Society.
1: Barn owls seemed likely to nickel in part because they are already considered eerie. According to Ryan Barber, a researcher with the Barn Owl Project, BOP! They famously like to roost in old and abandoned buildings, they have an unsettlingly odd appearance, and their vocal repertoire is heavy on hisses and clicks. In South Texas and Mexico, where part of Barber's family is from, barn owls are lechusa, shape-shifting witches that foretell foul fortune. Barber says, quote, some of those who've declined our invitation to come out and do fieldwork with us are actually bird biologists. They say that owls, especially barn owls, freak them out, end quote. (laughs) Ornithologist Rob Beauregard, who spent 10 years studying barred owls in Charlotte, North Carolina, that's barred, B-A-R-R-E-D, not like tra-la-la, I have a lute. But Rob Beauregard says, quote, when it comes to haunted houses and ghosts, I've always assumed that's barn owls. They make really bizarre noises, and they like buildings that look haunted, much like some co-hosts of this show. Yeah. There were other reasons to think an owl of some sort was the culprit, Nichols says. The Mothman's shape, as originally reported, is very owl-like, with a head and body that blended together. Yet as Nichols investigated, he became less convinced that a barn owl was the answer. But there was a problem, Nichols says. Barn owls have a relatively weak eye shine, likely too weak to account for the haunting red eyes attributed to Mothman. Luckily, there was another candidate available, the barred owl, a large species with a rounded head, deep black eyes, and a loud, deep hoot that echoes through the dark. They prefer hollows in old trees and open forests and are common throughout the southeast. Officials in the former TNT area, now the McClintic Wildlife Management Area, confirmed to Nichols that a healthy population of barred owls live on the refuge. Most importantly, barred owls have a dramatic crimson eye shine due to the amount of blood vessels around the eyes. Wild. Yeah. Owls, man. Owls. But I love that
2: that, that, that article features multiple ornithologists being like, owls, man. Yeah. <laughs> <They're> Freaking <laughs> Freak me out. <laughs> no but, thank you <laughs> but if i'm going to be honest with you i will um, pass it's going to let that breathe <laughs> but if i'm going to be honest with you anna and listeners um i don't care what the mothman was because that's not nearly as important as what happened next and the legacy that followed all of it let's take a break and when we come back we'll get into what cemented our boy forever
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. culturomedia.com.
2: And when we last saw the Mothman, it was December 12th, 1967. According to eyewitness reports, he was seen hanging around, maybe even perching on the Silver Bridge. So the Silver Bridge crossed the Ohio River, which again, big river here in the U.S. It was the first big river that I ever saw. It was the
1: big river to you. It was the
2: big river. Yeah. And um, it is thought that there have been. Um, historically, like man sized catfish in there. And I was
1: just like, I'm not even man sized. <laughs> like, I can't, <laughs> I can't do this. I have seen man sized fish in the Charles River. And it freaked me out. Mm-mm. No
2: Mm-mm. thanks. Mm-mm. Um, but the Silver Bridge connected Point Pleasant to Gallipolis, Ohio, which is how you say that. And it was heavily traveled. So the bridge was opened in 1928 and was seen as a bit of innovation in engineering um, as rather than being a wire cable sub- suspension bridge, it was an I-bar link suspension bridge, which meant that it had flat metal links joined by steel bars that were about a foot long and two inches thick. Mm. So I-bars. Um, I don't know anything about bridges. So that's where I'm stopping there.
1: Well, this isn't um, a bridge cast. So lucky you.
2: Yeah. So around dark on the afternoon of December 15th, 1967, when people were returning home from work or doing a little pre-dinner Christmas shopping, a crack in I-bar number 330 brought the whole thing down into the water. So the process of collapse involved the bridge deck where the road is to twist and then flip over. Which Ugh. uh threw the vehicles that were on it into the water. Within a few seconds, the bridge itself collapsed and fell into the water on top of the cars oh, and trucks beneath it. Yeah. So all told, forty six people died in the collapse. Um and this was one of the first things that, like one of the first news stories that my mom remembers as a child. I can see why. Um so I've included in the show notes a link to Pulitzer Prize winning Charleston Gazette Mail um, and a story in which um, survivors and responders reflect on the collapses at what was then 45 years later. Um, and it speaks to what an immense tragedy it was for these very close knit communities, um, because basically they said that um, in the in the, re- the search and rescue efforts, there wasn't a single person they didn't know. Um, And so there's an anecdote about a woman who, um, incidentally, was very pregnant at the time, who saw the bridge collapsing in real time and hit reverse and made it off before it fell in. And she just kind of like stood there. She like got out of her car and just like watched. Um, So that is something that happened. And so this happened um, just like three days after the last... Yeah, man, sighting, mm-hmm. and it could be that this community was struck by like trauma and grief, and didn't really have time to spend thinking about this anymore. Um, so it could be that like they kind of shift gears, but so I don't know whether this, this theory I'm going to share arose from within the community or from outside observers that involved themselves in the hunt for the mothman. But a hypothesis emerged that the mothman had come to point pleasant as a portent of the tragedy to come. So some have gone so far as to say it was responsible for the collapse. Um, but mostly it's a matter of being a harbinger of doom. Um, and so perhaps its arrival and the Silver Bridge collapse were the fulfillment of a curse sent by someone in particular. So, did you know any of this, Anna? I didn't. No. Oh, great. Well, get ready. I'm ready. Um, in, in order to tackle this suggestion, I need to zoom out a little bit and talk about Point Pleasant and its history as a spot for heritage tourism and commemoration of heavy stuff. Oh boy. You see the city has for a very, very long time been a center of activity. It's an important location for river traffic and commerce um, as it sits at the confluence of the Ohio and the Kanawha River. And so the Kanawha River is a slightly less big, it's a less big river, but it's still a big one. And it reaches eastward away from the Ohio, which uh, runs more or less Mm north-south. So this is how you kind of get into Um, Into what is now West Virginia, like into sort of the mountainous areas, because the Ohio Valley is pretty low lying and then it gets quite mountainous. So the Kanawha River is a is a easier way to gotcha uh, of, of ingress into the mountains. So prior to settler colonists arriving, it was a Shawnee city. And so if you visit that confluence today, you will find yourself in Two Indy Way State Park, which cites its name as derived from a Wyandotte name, meaning point between two waters. Um, I do not know if this is accurate or whether the Wyandotte nations kicked around this far south in the 18th century. Um, but I do know that I went there. So I remember <laughs> I remember visiting this park. And, and so little? I was little. Yeah, I was okay. little. Um, yeah, because um, so West Virginia has really amazing state parks. Now we've got an amazing national park. But um, growing up poor, we could just go to parks. And so we went to like in the summers, we would go to all the um, like all the parks, every yeah. state park. So this was like what we would do. And I remember going there. And getting lost. I got separated oh, no. from my family. Oh, and, no. and I got separated here. And I remember two salient features because they both freaked me out. The flood walls. Uh, because I didn't have the greatest sense of like time as a child. And I was like, flood now? Oh, Just no. flood in general. So the flood walls, because again, this was the first big river I had ever seen. Um, and the Battle of Point Pleasant Memorial. So the Battle of Point Pleasant occurred on October 10th, 1774. It was congressionally recognized as the first battle of the Revolutionary War, um, but Congress is not known for its large proportion of historians. So um, it's it wasn't. <laughs> it was not. But they will say. That it was congressionally recognized. Anyone who talks about it is like congressionally recognized as. Um, it is more, appro- more appropriately classified as part of Lord Dunmore's War. Are you familiar with this war? No, he sounds great, though. Oh, look him up. Total dweeb. Look at that dweeb. Um, but Lord Dunmore's War, he was the um, governor of the colony of Virginia at this time. Um, and it was waged by the colony of Virginia against the Mingo and Shawnee Nations um and th- and they were the the two primary nations that lived in this in what is now the Ohio River Valley um and into West Virginia what is now? West Virginia. So um, I guess the battle was a victory for the settlers. Um, mm. And as a result, the leader of the Shawnee side, whom history remembers as, as Chief Cornstalk, but whose name was Hoka Lesqua, became a proponent of Shawnee neutrality in the revolution that started popping off the following year. Like there were a lot of um, like Shawnee citizens who were interested in aligning with the British Because they thought that by fighting the Americans, they could possibly get some of their land back. But Hocalesqua and and like-minded individuals were like, there is absolutely no good that's going to come of fighting the Americans. Let's stay out of this. Yeah. And so in 1777... Um, Lesqua made a diplomatic visit to Fort Randolph, which is what is now Point Pleasant. Um, and rather than being received as such, um, he and his envoy were imprisoned by the fort's commander and subsequently murdered by a mob. Hmm. Um, so his death galvanized many Shawnee citizens who were already leaning in favor of militarism. His death precipitated some action, Okay. Or maybe it was going to happen anyway. And, and this just was an unfortunate coincidence a, yeah. for sort of the trajectory of of um, Shawnee involvement in mm-hmm. the conflict. But legend says that with his dying breath, Chief Cornstalk uttered a curse against this place and its people who met his peaceful actions with violence. It was this curse that 190 years later, the Mothman arrived to announce its fulfillment. The Battle of Point Pleasant and the legacy of relations with the Shawnee's nation may have been the town's claim to historical fame forever if it weren't for the Mothman's arrival. After initial hunts through through like 66 and into 67, out in the TNT area where people would like go out and look for it, Mothman peepers, like just going out to like <laughs> trying to, to see if they can sight it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ufologist and protagonist of the third act of this episode john a keel i look forward
1: um, to hearing more about him later
2: uh reignited interest in the phenomenon and everything that happened around it when he published the mothman prophecies in 1975 Um, Mm -hmm. and he continued to make appearances on late night tv for years to come so it kind of kept it in people's minds um a film adaptation, to put it very loosely, of The Mothman Prophecies came out in 2002. Did you see this? Sure didn't. With Richard Gere and Laura Linney. And it, tri- <laughs> again, very 2002. I remember seeing it at a sleepover at my friend's house because her older stepbrother had torrented it and like had spent like all night downloading it. The yep. dial-up was so slow. So that's really... <laughs> That's the
1: most so it's early 2000s like like statement you've yeah. ever said.
2: <laughs> so um, when it came out in 2002, it triggered a Mothmanissance that has <laughs> never really ended. Mothmanissance. <laughs> So in uh, Robert J. Cruz's article, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, making a tourism landscape in an Appalachian town, um, there's a quote from Point Pleasant resident Denny Bellamy about how the different aspects of the town's history form a heritage tourism landscape. So I will quote that now. Let's say we're bringing in a family and you say to the kids, we're going to spend the day touring museums. The kids are going to say, right, I'm good. You go ahead. But if you say, we're going to Point Pleasant to check out the Mothman, the kids are gonna go. And we have the West Virginia Farm Museum here near the Mothman trail. So we'll show where the Mothman was sighted and also take a tour of the farm museum. Might as well sneak in the history of farming. You tell them supposedly Chief Cornstalk when he was murdered at Fort Randolph put a curse on Point Pleasant for a hundred years. And that's what the Mothman is about. So then we go to 2 Way State Park and show where he's buried. Then we'll take them out to Fort Randolph. People also tie the Mothman to the falling of the Silver Bridge, which locals don't like at all. So we take them to the River Museum and give them the true history of the falling of the bridge, end quote. Very savvy person. Yeah. So in discussing the role of Mothman and local tourism, I want to call a listener's attention to Devin Michael Elliott's Bowling Green University master's thesis, West Virginia urban landscape legends, sorry, West Virginia urban legends and their impact on cultures, both local and abroad, which draws from interviews with Jeff Wamsley, um, who uh, runs the he, he runs the Mothman Museum. And, um, and co-author and also, of the yeah, book you yeah, were
1: yeah, working exactly.
2: on, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and other community members, as well as the perhaps less approving folks at the Point Pleasant River Museum in Fort Randolph, where I got lost as a child. <laughs> Oops. Apologies to those people who had to deal with me. Um, so it frames the Mothman, as well as his fe- fellow mountaineers, the Flatwoods Monster and the Grafton Monster. Uh, Grafton Monster is very close to me. Spatially. Like personally? Not no. emotionally, spatially. Um, <laughs> as something of a trinity of monster tourism in West Virginia. In the case of the Mothman, it's a type of dark tourism, which is tourism informed by human suffering and death. Which so is somehow of, a whole industry. It is a whole industry. And there are some ways in which it is seen as um, eh, educational. It's just sort of like macabre. But that's it, but it's part of it because of that relationship to the Silver Bridge uh, collapse. Right. Okay. So, if you've been on the internet any time in the past decade or so, you might also be familiar with another aspect of Mothman, namely that he's super queer.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I know this because because of you, really. Just <laughs> because of you, I see Mothman adjacent things like on Twitter and stuff. And that's okay. how I am okay. like aware of that aspect. So.
2: In another master's thesis, I think this one from the University of Kentucky, um, I've included in the show notes, the Mothman and other strange tales, shaping queer Appalachia through folkloric discourse in online social media communities. Author Brenton Watts takes a linguistic anthropology approach to the role of Mothman in online communities like the queer Appalachia Instagram. Um, So let me read an excerpt that illustrates the power of pairing a cryptid with queer identity. (laughs) <laughs> or you can. Do you want to read
1: it? Sure. In the interest of multivocality, it is also vital to note that much of the folkloric discourse under analysis here is rooted in humor. This makes sense because, as Burgen-Hertzler, 1971, states, quote, quote, humor breaks down an expectation system by replacing congruous elements with incongruous ones, end quote. quote. In other words, at least one of the reasons why something like Mothman is real and he's gay is funny is because it swaps out the expectation for what the Mothman is and replaces it with a characteristic that one would not think relevant to the Mothman. However, it is also important to remember that in doing this, humor informs us indirectly which elements belong in the system and which do not. For example, here the humor is derived from the incongruency between the Mothman and gayness, or perhaps the Mothman and any kind of sexuality, given that a monster's sexual orientation is usually the least of anyone's concerns. By this same token, through a cis-heteronormative and or metronormative lens, the notion of a queer Appalachian person may seem ridiculous, again, due to their incongruency. Therefore, another possible function of queer Appalachian folkloric discourse, specifically that which centers monsters like the Mothman, is that it symbolically enacts the reclamation of anti-queer Appalachian prejudice. In other words, queer Appalachia is taking the perceived incongruency to the extreme and identifying with that extreme, and in doing so they are nullifying any potential harm derived from this kind of anti-queer Appalachian humor discourse. This kind of overtly sexual and by extension queer interpretation of the Mothman is not unique to queer Appalachia. Generally speaking, the Internet abounds with memes that queer and or sexualize the Mothman and other cryptids. Yeah, the Internet.
2: Does that make sense?
1: It does. Yeah. So like by it's it's kind of a subversion of the Mothman in order to claim it as. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and, and sort of thinking like, oh, the like mothman is um like he's very appalachian like he's very appalachian and like i'm saying like yeah he's real and he's gay it's sort of like a as a queer person in like that Appalachia, space exists. i'm not supposed to exist either like right yeah it. yeah yeah and and so it's a way to um it's a sort of like it's very much a brand of like it me humor <laughs> Um, this is me (laughs) this is this is another amber theory watts goes on to mention the extremely horny mothman statue is that that a link for me to click i I included photos of the front and the back Um, boy! and so uh the mothman there's a mothman statue in point pleasant that i think was i think it was put up in like 2003 maybe um but it's like very shiny look at that Um, butt he's it's like super masculine he's got a six-pack he's got like a really juicy booty and it's just like it's it's like really horny right yeah it's It's like weirdly horny it's weirdly horny yeah okay so like that is neither here nor there that exists no it's Um,
1: it's it's, it's in point pleasant (laughs) which is neither here nor there
2: um, So at multiple points Watts compares Mothman To the Popobawa of Tanzania We have um, talked about this Which we've talked about on Dirt After Dark yeah. And mm-hmm. itself is a complex And culturally bound monster legend So yep. I mention that only as a Preface to this next quote Which hits at the heart of something that has bristled For a long, bristled me For a long time um, You want to read that? Sure
1: Quote, as both the Mothman legend and Appalachia come to prominence in an increasingly globalized world, the goals of this research become all the more urgent. As Blomert writes in Discourse, quote, if voice in the era of globalization becomes a matter of the capacity to accomplish functions of linguistic resources translocally across different physical and social spaces the capacity for semiotic mobility, ugh. then when Popobawa goes global, Tanzanians have very little voice. Well, that does that make sense? That, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it, yeah. But does that make sense? Yes,
2: I think so. When the idea and the image and the object goes global and there are more people talking about it, the Tanzanians who originated it and who engage with it and who are impacted by it, Lose, they get kind of drowned out. Their voice gets drowned out or right. eliminated okay. entirely.
1: Yeah, that's okay. I, I'm, that's what I understand Watts to be arguing here. Okay. Similarly, the Mothman legend, with its distinct ties to Appalachian and its burgeoning ties to both queerness and queer Appalachianness, stands the chance of being misinterpreted and misappropriated by outsiders if it hasn't been already. In other words, as the Mothman legend begins to go global, thanks to media, such as Fallout 76, then queer Appalachians also run the risk of having very little voice as well. OK, thank you, because having that translation of the jargon as preface to that really helps.
2: Yeah, with that, that is second part, you know, like it's um, and that was the end of the quote. Sorry. Yeah. And so like that's something that has always that has increasingly bothered me in recent years where it's like, hey, that's mine. Um, there, yeah, there, there's definitely. I mean, I do often get very like, my culture is not a costume. Like about mom mm-hmm. and and, sure. and it is, it is, it's on a different register of uh, like other notions of cultural appropriation. But as Watts yeah. illustrates here, it is a similar thing. It's like this is my heritage, my culture, my relationship with the 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 area in which I live and the sort of the the circumstances in which I live um, and like when it gets like memeified and made super cutesy. I say this as a person who has a practice what you screech sticker on my laptop. And uh, at least two Mothman hoodies. I, I do. I do have those now. Those are yeah, my fault this, though. This, <laughs> I know. This, as I like got to this part, I was like, I hope this doesn't end up feeling like a subtweet of Anna's very thoughtful gift <laughs> um, Because the one that is like more appropriate for me is the one was sent accidentally, so you did not pick it, and the other one that you did pick says the only man for me is Mothman, which is I think fits in, which fits it, which fits in with what we're saying. But it is something of of thinking about like when it becomes like a a meme, like a cute, right? Yeah, something cutesy. Like when you think about like no, it has a the mythos around it is. A sad one and like a, a one. A tragic one. one, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so like... There's really it's... nothing cute about it.
2: Yeah, so let's take one more break. A little breaky-poo. And then we'll shift gears again. We're gonna go into third. Ooh!
0: <laughs> Does your car no.
1: make that noise? Uh, no, it doesn't, no. <laughs>
2: in this last act, let's try let's try to think through what the Mothman story might be saying about Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and about the people who have hunted him for more than half a decade. Let's first return to the guy who really put it on the map for the rest of the country, nay, the world, <laughs> um, John A. Keel. So he was a ufologist. Is it Christian- ufologist? Yeah. I've been saying UFOlogist. I feel like a fool. As I mentioned, The Mothman Prophecies was released in 1975. And in addition to being about the Mothman sightings, there was like all this other like super like banana stuff that he pulls into the narrative. And this includes UFO (laughs) sightings. Uh Uh-huh. There was a UFO flap at this point. Are Are you familiar with the term flap? Like a hubbub? no. A flap is a sort of – it, it. flaps are kind of defined by both geography and time, where there will be frequent sightings over a period of time in a specific place. So, Specifically
1: of UFOs, though?
2: Yeah. You also have, like, Bigfoot flaps. You have, oh, okay. like, things – like, anything that um, – any, like, kind of – Yeah. And sort of – yeah, mm. and it's it's really like a, a UFO thing. Okay. Where you will have flaps. sort of – It's a flap, yeah. Um, So there were many UFO sightings um, in the Ohio River Valley at this point. My mom also has stories about UFO. Great time to be the late 60s. Great time to be a West Virginian. Um, There were those. There were men in black sightings. So sightings of men in black. And so these are um, usually they would be, they were seen as perhaps working For the government or with the government. Uh, And the one of them, possibly one of them, was Indrid Cold. Do you know Indrid Cold? The man named Cold?
1: Sounds kind of Welsh.
2: No. Um, So Indrid Cold was, um, so he became a big part of this because I think it was in 1966, a man named Woody Derenberger uh, from Point Pleasant had an experience um, where um, he saw a craft or something. He didn't describe it that way, but he saw something odd. And then a man came up to him and he was very smiling and um, looked weird and um, seemed to be able to communicate with him without speaking. So there's sort of like a telepathic thing. And the, and so that kind of goes in a, different direction but that becomes a big part of the mothman prophecies of indrid cold the smiling man um and he's he's been encountered elsewhere and he's also like kind of a meme i think he came up on um a McElroy product maybe it was in the adventure zone or something um but they're them you know they're from southern west virginia um and so indrid cold became part of it and then also these precognition or visions that people were having who were impacted by Mothman, by the UFOs, by whatever, um, presumably the Silver Bridge collapse. So he brings in a lot of stuff there that becomes a bit, becomes like part and parcel of sort of the UFO mania, um, which also kind of puts... Mothman in
1: like a extraterrestrial camp for some people. So all of this was about just just under ten years after the initial sightings. So the the site. So this was when it was published when he
2: published the Mothman prophecies. He uh-huh. had been he had been in communication with like he had visited uh, Point Pleasant. At the end of 1966. Okay. Um, and so he did his investigations and he got all caught up in like men in black stuff. And, and so that's what I'm saying. Like, Mothman Prophecies is a really engaging book. A lot of stuff and going on, it seems. There, Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's, it's, if I, as I remember it, like he sort of posits himself as like a, a journeyman scholar. And, oh. and I, I, I think if I read it now, I would probably read things about like, class differently and how he like relates to the people in the area but it gets pulled into this sort of like grand unified strangeness theory um, sure. and there's an additional layer that comes in that that arrives in the con- the public consciousness in the 2002 film um which the Mothman in- prophecies the mothman prophecies the film um okay. which involved connecting the original legend of mothman seen for one uh, like thirteen months, mm-hmm. um, in one place. Connecting it with other historic disasters, including really famously Chernobyl, and that kind of took off
1: far away to have.
2: Well, no, it took off as like another another story of like the blackbird of some neighboring village mm. outside of Chernobyl mm-hmm. that appeared that had never been seen before okay. and then it appeared and then it left and then the chernobyl disaster happened um that didn't happen that was fiction that was
1: there was no bird i mean there i mean there was no bird story
2: yeah the bird story did not exist there are people who have tied it to the galveston hurricane people have tied it to nine eleven, of course saying that like people saw a mothman type thing um i'm not gonna like even touch people seeing it in chicago because i don't I mm. uh, uh, okay. I don't have any I don't have anything on that <laughs> I don't I don't have sure. nothing to contribute. Um, also, since 2002, um, in other like documentaries and stuff that have been made, I've seen and I I'm not gonna call anyone out here, but someone who is sort of like in the cryptid documentary set um, has tried tying it to other cultures' harbingers. And re- referring specifically to Garuda. So Garuda is from Hindu mythology. And so the idea of like Garuda would, was this like massive black winged being that would show up before spelling disaster. And I looked into this and it seems that Garuda was, was a like big old bird, like a, like a sort of cosmic bird that was the, the mount of Vishnu.
1: So, uh, so his mythology has been around for a while. Like well, well before. And,
2: and also um not involved, not seen as portentous, not seen as an omen. Oh. Seen as it is so Garuda appears on the um the seals, the official like the seals of several nations. Uh, because I think it it got picked up into Buddhism also. And there is Garuda Airlines. Um in you, you wouldn't want Indonesia
1: like Harbinger Airlines.
2: I found nothing whatsoever saying that Garuda was is is affiliated with anything negative. It seems to be affiliated with power and sort of holiness. Like it's a part of a like religious cosmos. But it's very interesting to me that the trying to re, trying to tie it into like a deeper mythology. And um, and that that's something that one sees happen in sort of the realm of sort of cryptozoology and like paranormal studies of like trying to legitimate something by finding earlier examples of it. Um, And unfortunately, in this case, those aren't there. So I want to read also, I want to read a letter from John A. Keel. This is parts of a letter received from John A. Keel, New York, written 1-2-67. So this was about six weeks after the first sighting. <laughs> the situation in Point Pleasant seems to be quite complex. UFO activity began in the northern stretches of the Ohio River in March 1966 and slowly continued along the river until late fall. Point Pleasant is just one of many spots being closely scrutinized by a who knows What? But it is a microcosm, which may furnish us with important clues that will point to a final solution of the mystery. Here's what to look for in your wanderings. These are instructions from John A. Keel to the eyewitnesses. 1. Deposits of metallic substances, such as strips of metal foil or piles of ordinary slag. This stuff will appear suddenly in farm fields, etc., In some instances, people will tell you that they have seen such substances being discharged by low-flying UFOs. If any of these things do turn up, send me some samples if you can. 2. If you get a UFO landing report, measure the holes left in the ground and look for deposits of a jelly-like liquid. Collect this liquid in bottles using sticks and chopstick fashion to pick it up. It may burn your fingers. (laughs) Also look for, for burned foliage sick and for freshly dug earth the so latter will <laughs> the latter will appear in perfect circles if you dig down a few feet you may find one or more small round metal spheres if these spheres turn up ship one to me to collect and then it underlined do not give them to the air force or to local authorities who may turn them over to the air force handle the spheres with gloves three keep on the lookout for stories of stolen dogs or cattle four Let me know if any strangers appear in Point Pleasant and threaten any of the witnesses in any way. Try to get a complete description of such strangers, how they are dressed, what kind of car they are driving, and license plates. You may start soon getting peculiar stories of luminous globs of red or white light appearing in houses. Watch for them. 6. Watch for peeping Tom reports, particularly if the peeper is described as a very large man. Don't know. Seven, pay attention to all far out stories. For instance, if a woman tells you that she had a dream in which she saw a little man standing in front of the crib of her baby, find out the date of the dream, in quotes, and obtain the racial background of the family. Eight, try to obtain doctor statements concerning persons being physically affected with physically affected from sightings. It would prove worthwhile to keep a simple, underlined, brief facts notebook on these things, recording only the dates, names, and addresses of of witnesses, and a very brief description of the incident. Eventually, you'll find a pattern developing, even with the wildest stories. I would like to know what waste chemicals the the Pantasote plant is dumping into the Ohio River and how often they dump chemicals there. This could be an important lead. Also, I'm interested in knowing if the experimental farm uses any form of radioactive isotopes in their work or any special chemicals, J-A-K. So this is very early on in the sort of Mothman sighting spree that this guy's like writing one of the, witness, the eyewitnesses and being like, look out for all of this weird stuff and sort of like planting this, this seed that you, you could end up having a bit of confirmation bias there.
1: Mm, Um, Especially if it's like,
2: yeah, Johnny Keel also describes the the men in black as having darker skin, like a weird tan color skin, having Mm. exotic features like just and I so I have a little pet theory um, about men in black and how they began to be more prevalent during the Vietnam War. Uh huh. Because I think, perhaps, what people are describing and I'm not gonna go into like too much detail about the features because it sort of feels like perpetuating a racism to say it, but many descriptions of men in black sound to me like someone racistly describing someone from Southeast Asia. Interesting. And so that's my little pet theory about uh, Men in Black, and, and looking at it as the, and and also if you think about um, sort of norms around like smiling and and things like that, like how how people Facially, are like, sort of yeah. socialized to like sure. behave towards strangers. Let's just leave that there. That's good. Yeah. So the very real military and national security anxieties of the time come through in other aspects of Keel's narrative regarding the Mothman and the
1: UFO flap. On the subject of UFOs, (laughs) it's how your pet UFOs come in through the door. (laughs) He's the UFO UFO flap. flap.
2: (laughs) Wipe your paws. Um, so on the subject of UFOs, historian of science Kate Dorsch writes in Foreign
1: Policy, quote U.S. military involvement with the UFO question, what are they? Where do they come from? Dates back to the summer of 1947 and the birth of the modern UFO. We can track the modern UFO, or flying saucer, to the pilot and UFO godfather Kenneth Arnold's Or sighting in late June 1947. While assisting in a search for a missing military transport plane over the Cascade Mountains in Washington state, Arnold reported seeing nine discrete flying objects zipping about the mountain peaks. He described them as silvery or metallic, fast, and appearing to be intelligently controlled. Arnold made note of the weather, the time, and used, object in his, and used objects in his cockpit to estimate size and speed. When he landed, he told his colleagues. Then he told the press. Arnold's sighting was followed by a series of copycat sightings. The sightings were first localized in the Pacific Northwest, but quickly spread across the continental United States and then around the world. The U.S. Air Force, then the Army, no, nope. the U.S. Air Force, then the U.S. Army Air Forces took serious interest in the sightings, given the descriptions it was receiving, that these were aerial technology, metallic, intelligently controlled, and terrestrial That Arnold's sighting takes place and receives the attention it does is no mere fluke of history, but rather a deeply contingent event that hinges on its post-war moment. The modern UFO brought together and embodied three specific characteristics of the tensions of 1947. First, the flying saucers of 1947 represented the technoscientific developments of World War II taken to the extreme, The World Wars, and the second in particular, had led to unprecedented developments and progress in the technology and science of warfare. Major breakthroughs were made in submarine technology, aerial technology, both manned and unmanned, cybernetic command control technologies, computing technologies, medical technologies, surveillance and sensor technology, and weapons technology. The appearance of strange and potentially deadly objects in the skies was a resonant idea in the wake of the V-2 rocket attacks on London and the unleashing of the atomic bomb. These flying disks, many believed, could just be the next step in bomber technology. 1947 was also a pivotal year in the development of the Cold War, though once allies, the spring of 1947 saw the American-Soviet friendship collapse, articulated in the Truman Doctrine of March 1947, which presented communism as a threat to the American way of life and pressed the need to contain that threat geopolitically. Americans were faced with, as they saw it, a new and alien challenger. The summer of 1947 also witnessed the creation of the Air Force as an independent branch of the U.S. military. The Allied forces had won World War II, thanks in large part to U.S. military support, especially superior U.S. air power. As a result, the U.S. Army Air Forces understood itself as not only the critical element of the Allied victory over fascism, but as the foremost offensive power and first line of defense in future wars, which would certainly be airborne.
2: End quote. Yeah. So that essay is titled UFOs were born among America's Cold War fears. And it's linked in the show notes. Um, I think it's really important to call attention to the existential nature of the anxieties that phenomena like UFOs and cryptids tap into. And we've talked about that a bit in the past. And and we will be talking about it more. We will be. It's true. It's true. Um, And that's where I want us to pause here and ruminate a bit at the end of the episode.
1: My second intellectual stomach is ready.
2: <laughs> so let's go back to the home of the Mothman and look into the reality of the TNT area. So um, in the show notes, you can find an NPR photo essay of what it looks like today with the additional creepiness of it being photographed in the middle of winter. Home sweet, gloomy home. <laughs> Just um, It's gray. It's so gray. Kind of spiky. Uh, so as I mentioned a while ago, the TNT area was the nickname of the site of the former West Virginia Ordnance Works, which operated from 1942 to 1945 and employed at its peak 3,500 people, wow. which is a lot of jobs. So a lot. After the war... It was decommissioned and it was converted into a landfill in the Clintic Wildlife Management Area, the Mason County Airport and an industrial park among some other fields and stuff. Sure. Um, so that all sounds well and good. I mean, it that's doesn't, but. Cool. That you, they're just like, we're done. And then they bulldozed it. Yeah, that's, that's. Yeah. Especially <laughs>
1: given what was being produced there. Exactly. And the components that were, I assume, still there. Probably, yeah, but
2: th- but they were done because that's oh, what we um, did in
1: 1945 in this yep, country. All
2: done. So, um, turns out decommissioning a plant that used that used explosive materials to build bombs um, might be a bit more complicated than bulldozing it and letting owls move in. <laughs> in 1979, fishermen were like, "Hey, there's some red ooze seeping into the water," and in 1981, people started detecting TNT dnt and other extremely poisonous contaminants in the soils and water in 1983 it was classified as a superfund site which is something that is funded under the comprehensive environmental response compensation and liability act of 1980 because it was becoming a bit of a thing that the mid-century so a lot of like wartime and mid-century sort of industrial areas were Oops. turning out to oh. be killing people. Yeah. So it was classified as a Superfund site um, in 1983. It was named West Virginia's top priority for cleanup Good. and considered one of the top 10 most polluted sites in the country. Uh, bad. Which if you have any familiarity at all with Superfund sites, that's... Saying something? A real, yeah, that is quite the achievement to be the most polluted site. So, you did um, it. today, it, it is still today in active remediation status today. Wow. Um, so, it's not totally better. Also, in May of 2010, one of the igloos exploded. So, it had about 10 tons, 20,000 pounds of unstable materials left in it. Um, and it just exploded. I mean,
1: which, it didn't- d- Hopefully it didn't explode while anyone was there working on it.
2: Well, nobody was. Yeah. Well, no, you suggest that somebody's.
1: Actively working there.
2: Well, I just didn't. Um, want, I was hoping no so, one was hurt. So, so no one was hurt. That's good, I guess. No, no one was directly hurt. Okay, by well, that. yeah, no one was exploded. Um, so, so please, please note. But I don't want anybody sort of getting an anachronistic sense of, of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, please note that the earliest official report that from the Fishers of the ooze um, was more than the a, ooze. was was more than a decade after the last Mothman sighting. But the TNT area was very much still haunted back in the 60s. So when the ordinance work shut down, it took thousands of jobs with it and it left a scarred landscape in its stead. Um. At the time when the Scarberries and Millettes got chased off the TNT property, Mason County had just a year earlier been lumped in with 419 other counties by Congress as the mandate of the Appalachian Regional Commission. Appalachia has historically been undersor- underserved and overexploited, both in terms of its people and its landscape. And... With health, with disparities in health, education, life expectancy, and economic opportunity compared to the national average. Within Appalachia, those disparities are even more extreme for communities of color, people with disabilities, and queer folks. And, and some other categories of people also. Mm-hmm. So no one outside Appalachia ever noticed this or were given opportunity to notice this um, until John F. Kennedy's presidential race in 1960 when he met with the governors of several states that overlap with Appalachia. So West Virginia is the only state that is completely within Appalachia, but there are uh, 12 12 other states that have parts of their state are in Appalachia. Um, So between the attention raised first by Kennedy and And then I think in 1962, the publication of a very famous and moving book named Night Comes to the Cumberlands, a biography of a depressed area, people outside the region started to realize that there were communities of desperate, abandoned people suffering in the middle of one of the richest countries on earth and that the federal government needed to do something. So we were on the front lines of Lyndon B. Johnson's war on poverty. This was a time that Going out to the TNT area was like a reminder of like when there used to be jobs here. And so since then, um, since 1965, um, improvements have been made and progress has been won, but the structural inequities persist and take on different guises in every din- In every generation. So think about living there in the 60s when there's been an uptick in attention to the place you call home and have little more than your pride to hang on to. Jobs have fallen off since your parents were kids. And one of the most important features of your town is a monument to a battle directly involved in the displacement and extermination of the people who lived there before. Like, how can you not feel cursed? If this is... It's a very cursed history. if, if If this is your world. Yeah. And then... When the bridge fails, people die and everyone else in the world says, well, lesson learned. Guess we'll go back to like making better bridges and living their lives and forgetting about this place until a kooky man writes a book. And then when that same place thought to be haunted by a monster turns out to be poisoning the water and the land and the people who live around it, how can you not feel cursed? Yeah, it's just that the curse is, oops, it's us again. And so that's something that... Here at the end is what I think of when I think of the Mothman, and this is why people in Point Pleasant, like as, as sort of they they allude to in those stories, like there are plenty of people who like see the Mothman Museum as kind of like a necessary evil. It's like well, it gets people here, and then they can learn the real history, or people who sort of resent. I mean, it's now part of a video game, like Fallout seventy six. So is sort of set like, in it's uh, Monongahela Forest. It,
0: so, so I think it's, it's like in, all over West
2: Virginia it's yeah. in it's in yeah and so thinking about like someone else is like picking up our story and telling it for us but leaving out all the parts that imply that we're humans and so like this is it's it's stories like this that I think, attracted me to anthropology and also to the elements of anthropology uh, that involve like indigenizing anthropology and decolonizing anthropology and giving people the tools and the opportunity and the platform to tell their own stories. I love the art done by Liv Pavlovic of like keep on creeping on like I, lo- <laughs> I love her stuff um she's based here in west virginia but like i love it i think it's adorable but i also like mm. do all the kids on tumblr <laughs> know that this do is they know that this is this story? is something real and yeah. that if you take like a history of science approach to it you also see that like there's a lot more like we're all just kind of like floating in this soup sort of material circumstances and this this soup of of ideologies and of, of news and fears. And like, this was all happening like during the Vietnam war, like at the, at a, at a kind of a turning point in the Vietnam war too, where we were supposed to be handing it over to the Vietnamese.
1: Important extra ingredients added to that soup at that time. Yeah, And it tastes like mythology. Yeah. It's much more fun to just think about a
2: cryptid and like, try to like find a source for it. But what good does it do you? looking
1: for it if you aren't trying to understand. If we're being what, good historians and good anthropologists, then yeah. to do that, we need to do what you've done, just to huh. to really put the human element and the context back.
2: Yeah, because if it was a barred owl, like, it wasn't just a barred owl.
1: No, it was a, it was it a was, barred owl being seen and interpreted and experienced in the context of all this other stuff. Yeah.
2: And so that is sort of, that's why I'm interested in like cryptids and the paranormal because it, they tell us so much more about, about us and, and who we are and who we're afraid we are and like who we want to be. Well, that's my Mothman story. I learned so much. Oh, ah, that was a good script. I've just been, I've just been walking around with like all of this in my head for 20 years.
1: I'm, I'm glad um, you got to let it out because it's been <laughs> rent free for too long. I know. Get a job. That's going to do it for us, huh?
2: Yeah. Next week, I think we're going to be sort of bringing up the mood a little
1: bit. Sure. I'll be there, too. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, have I got a Deep Cuts treat for you, which we're going to record at some point later. Possibly tomorrow. Okay. (laughs) Tomorrow's a good idea. But thank you for listening, everybody. We will be back in your ears next week with more spooky content, uh, which you can find over at the Dirt Pod. Dot com along with all of our back episodes and merch and syllabus for educators and hey that registration link for our live show which again is Saturday October 16th at 4 pm eastern. Come join us, come hang. it's gonna be really fun the slash iad
2: 2021.
1: You can also find us on social media where we post things about archaeology and sometimes not about archaeology. On Facebook, we're just The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Ah!
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.